This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Voters in this state have a lot to decide on this year's ballot, from universal health care to raising the minimum wage. We've been asking for your questions about any of the statewide measures so that our reporters can answer them. And with me now, Megan Verlee, who covers government for us, health reporter John Daly, and on education, Jenny Brundine. Welcome to the three of you. Hey, Ryan. Hi. Nice to be here. Nice to see you. Megan, one measure would make it harder to amend the state constitution. So in previous elections, there have been all sorts of amendments to the ball- uh, to the Constitution on the ballot. So the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, marijuana legalization, amendments created term limits for politicians and a lottery fund to pay for open space. And on this year's ballot, Amendment 71 would make the citizens initiative process harder for constitutional amendments. Kristen Winfield of Centennial asks, why do people pursue amendments so frequently when there are other options like just changing statute? Well, because changing statute uh, leaves that law change vulnerable to being messed with by the state legislature. There's nothing to prevent them from coming back in session the next January and tossing it out. And that did happen at least once with a campaign finance uh, measure that was passed as a statutory change. And so the groups came back and did it as a constitutional amendment. And Colorado Common Cause, one of the groups behind that amendment, uh, is one of the main opponents of Amendment 71 for that very reason. There is another reasoning here, though, which is that having something in the state constitution gives it kind of a halo. I I covered a lot of the debates around making policy for medical marijuana in the state legislature and proponents always drove home that we're the only state where medical marijuana is enshrined in the Constitution. And that became an arguing point for them that don't mess with this. It's in the Constitution. Okay, yeah. Even that word enshrined implies that the Constitution is some sort of shrine for something that uh, you want it to say. Uh, So under Amendment 71, anyone who wants to amend the state Constitution in the future has to collect signatures from across the state to put it on the ballot. And then 55 percent of voters have to agree to put it into the Constitution. Sam DeWitt of Denver asks, what happens to existing amendments if Amendment 71 passes? Specifically, would there be new requirements for repealing an amendment that voters approved in years past? Well, I think this question is on a lot of minds. And when I went and read the Blue Book language, I had a lot of trouble figuring it out, actually. Um, And there are things in the Constitution people aren't happy with, like Tabor and Amendment 23. Uh, So under Amendment 71, it would get harder to repeal an existing amendment, but not as hard as putting something new in. That's because backers of a repeal would have to go statewide to get their signatures. Uh, That's part of Amendment 71. Uh, But they would only need 50 percent plus one of the vote to actually pass their their repeal. Okay, so the vote itself is not more difficult, but the gathering of signatures to potentially remove something from the Constitution, that gets harder. Yes, and a quick fun fact, the only thing I found that was ever removed by by initiative from the Constitution was prohibition way back in the day. (laughs) All right. Uh, John Daly is CPR's health reporter, and my, John, this is a busy ballot on the health front. Indeed. Let's talk first about the universal health care proposal, Amendment 6 it would create something called Colorado Care, a taxpayer-funded health insurance system. Listener April Larson asks, how does free health care affect taxes for me and for small businesses? Well, Ryan, that's a great question. But let me say first that this is not free health care. 
Most Coloradans will still pay for their health care, but under this measure, you'd pay through taxes to this new statewide health program, not to healthcare companies directly. So the short answer on taxes is that it varies depending on someone's circumstances. So proponents say that the taxes most folks would pay to fund the system would be less than they currently pay for healthcare. So a net savings, opponents dispute this. To give you an example, I got this from the Colorado Health Institute, a nonpartisan group that's analyzed Amendment 69. So imagine two workers. They're in their mid-30s and they're in good health. One works as a delivery driver making $35,000 a year. The other works as a lawyer making $150,000 a year. Right now, they'd pay the same amount for health care. Say Colorado Care passes right now. Uh, um, the delivery driver would save significantly over what she's paying now, but the lawyer would pay a bit more. So it really depends on what you pay now for insurance and how much you earn. And people in businesses who earn large paychecks could end up paying more under Amendment 69. So again, would you pay more for if you're a business or an individual? Well, Colorado Care proponents have an online calculator where you can punch in your own specifics. So we've got a link to that on our website. That's cprnews.org. And uh, just briefly, how would taxes change for someone who's retired? Well, the picture gets uh, kind of complicated when you look at retirees because even non-payroll income gets taxed. Uh, to help fund this new universal health care system. Opponents of Colorado Care say retirees will get hit hard because they would pay tax on their benefits. Colorado Care advocates say there are exemptions, which ease that tax for most seniors. Another question about Colorado Care comes from Magdalena Lewis of Denver. She says she saw an article that raised the question of abortion rights and how they'd be affected if Colorado Care were to become reality. Yeah, this is a really interesting one because you kind of have uh, two progressive goals at odds here. But some pro-choice groups have concerns about this. The group NARAL is officially against Colorado Care because they worry that abortion services won't be covered. They point to a part of the Colorado Constitution that says public money can't be used to pay for abortion providers. Right now, even Medicaid covers abortion services in the cases of life, endangerment, rape, or incest, and some private plans offer more coverage. Pro-choice backers worry that those same benefits wouldn't exist under Colorado Care, but proponents of uh, Amendment 69 insist that they would. One more question now. Um, healthcare costs and the universal measure on Colorado's ballots is the subject of many of the questions we received. This one comes from Julie Noon of Lakewood. Why do we not hear anyone talk about why health insurance is so costly? Yeah, why is health insurance so expensive? Well, like so many questions, this one is really complicated. It's worth thinking about this in a couple of ways. Well, several things can help explain the rising premiums that we're seeing. One has to do with risk. So when Obamacare was launched in 2014, no one knew who or how many folks would sign up. So insurers set the rates So they pay for their customers' costs and also so they could absorb some losses. Well, many plans were underpriced So when the ACA launched. So now to make up for this underpricing and still stay profitable, insurers are raising the prices. It's what they call a market correction. Uh, The hope is that rates will start to level off as the system stabilizes. Now, competition is another factor. We're seeing some insurers leave the market. There's been a lot of news about that. Less competition means rising prices. Another factor is a lot of sick people signed up for insurance under Obamacare. Sick people are more expensive for insurers. 
And finally, the cost of health insurance is also strongly driven by the high cost of health care in general. And why is health care so expensive in the U.S.? Well, consider three things, high administrative costs, high drug costs, and defensive medicine where doctors are ordering multiple tests so they can be sure of a diagnosis and avoid getting sued. Uh, many who want to reform the healthcare system, like the people behind Colorado Care, are trying to address this complex mix of problems that make health insurance and healthcare so costly in the U.S. Of course, the opponents of Colorado Care think it's just too sweeping of a change. All right, there's your answer, Julie Noon in Lakewood. <laughs> Another healthcare-related measure on the ballot to uh, allow medical professionals to help terminally ill people and their lives. Patients would have to administer the drug themselves, and two doctors must agree that that patient is terminal. Ellie Weber of Denver told us on Twitter that she'd love to know who is supporting what is on your ballot, Amendment 106. Well, if you're talking about financial support, the campaign is called Yes on Colorado End-of-Life Options, and it's raised about $5.5 million. The vast majority of that money comes from an interest group called Compassion and Choices. It's national, but it has a headquarters in Colorado. Unfortunately, we can't be sure where that money is coming from because that group is what's called a 501c4 and it's not required to disclose its donors. Okay. And outside the financials, the ACLU of Colorado supports Prop 106. Governor John Hickenlooper supports it. So do many progressive groups and some medical societies in the state. Denver's archdiocese and other Catholic groups oppose it. So does the Denver Post, which editorialized against Prop 106 because they think that patients could be pressured into ending their own lives. Well, thanks so much, John. And to to Jenny Brendine now, CPR's education reporter. Jenny, Jessica Garcia of Denver asks about initiatives that are specific to the city of Denver to raise money for education. So this is 3A and 3B on the ballot. Garcia wants to know, we hear about them as a single issue, but what happens if 3A passes but not 3B or vice versa? Well, 3A is a mill levy which invests in classrooms, that's teachers and students. Property taxes only increase if 3A passes, and they'd go up about $10 a month for homes valued at about 320000 3B is not a property tax hike. It asks voters to let the district take out new bonds to invest in school facilities and buildings. So it would pay for things like leaky roofs and putting air conditioners in older schools. They'd also get more computers in classrooms. Currently, about one in five students in Denver has access to a computer at school. The Citizen Committee that put these measures on the ballot says both are critical to funding schools and they address separate issues. That's why you often hear about 3A and 3B as one measure. But they could stand alone separately, that is. Exactly. All right. Thanks, Jenny. And uh, she's our education reporter. Let's go back uh, for some final thoughts to Megan Verlee now. Megan, we've got some general questions about voting that we hope you can help answer. Sure. You reported on this being Colorado's first presidential election where every voter gets a ballot in the mail. Evelyn Cadman asks, what happens if someone goes to the polling place to vote on November 8th to ensure that they have not already voted by mail? 
Well, what makes this all possible is a statewide voter registration database. So when the clerk gets your ballot from the mail, they mark you as voted in that database. You go to a polling place. They look you up on their computer. You've already voted. You get sent home. Now, if you somehow drop your ballot in the box or the mail and run to your polling place before anybody can get to it and you vote there as well, uh, well, those double ballots will get flagged and uh, you may get a call from the DA's office. Yeah, the consequences could be serious there. Uh, What happens if you fill out a space wrong on your mailed ballot? Does that invalidate the whole ballot or just that question? Just that question. Okay, not the whole ballot. A final question about one of the biggest conundrums for Colorado voters, I think, the judicial retention questions. Every Colorado voter gets to say whether they think judges should keep their jobs. And the voters do get help from the Blue Book, which has recommendations. Christopher Gomez of Denver who, full disclosure, is a friend of mine, asks, who makes up the board of people that writes the judicial recommendations in the Blue Book? Well, that board is a commission on judicial performance, and there is one for each of the state's 22 uh, judicial districts. Each of those groups is made up of four lawyers, six non-lawyers. They're appointed by... um, political office holders and members of the the justice system. And they survey people who've interacted with the judge, lawyers, plaintiffs, defendants, court staff, other judges. They also review the judge's decisions and get an evaluation from them. So it's a pretty complicated process. Nice to hear from all three of you. You heard Megan Verlee, Jenny Brundine, and John Daly. We have much more about all of the ballot initiatives, that is, that CPR has covered at CPRnews.org. Click on the Colorado Voters Guide at the top of the page. Nationally, this election is expected to be the most expensive on record, with billions of dollars in campaign contributions. By contrast, the $30 million raised for local races in Colorado can seem quaint. But dig deeper here, and you'll find that one political party has a distinct advantage, and that could alter the balance of power in this state. Here's CPR's Ben Marcus. Which party has the most resources to pay for things like mailers? advertisements, voter registration. Republicans say it's not them. Mario Nicholas is a GOP campaign finance expert. This is probably one of the tragically most underreported issues in all of Colorado when it comes to elections, is the absolute dominance by Democrats over the past decade in the monetary side, in funding and contributions and outside spending. It appears to be mostly national money flowing into local super PACs. And a CPR analysis found that Democrats enjoy a two-to-one advantage, raising about $6 million more million than their Republican counterparts. Democrats get support from unions, education reformers, and wealthy philanthropists, while Republicans mainly get money from oil and gas companies. Eric Sonderman is an independent political analyst who isn't working on any campaigns this season. He says $6 million can go a long way in a local race. So you take that kind of financial advantage and target it in a very few districts. And yes, the money differential becomes very noticeable. Democrats are expected to easily hold on to their majority in the state House. But the state Senate is very much in play. Republicans currently have a one-seat majority. If Democrats can flip the chamber, they'll have total control of the legislature and the governor's office. Sonderman says there are intense battles playing out for just three or four Senate seats that are toss-ups. 
Yet Republicans still struggle to raise money. They just have not found the marketplace among their donor base to add that extra zero to the check. It's not, to my mind, for lack of trying, lack of effort. It just hasn't happened. Republicans who spoke to CPR on and off the record agreed with that assessment. Mario Nicholas has worked alongside his fellow Republicans to raise more money, often fruitlessly. He says that's partly because donors know that the GOP has little chance to take back power in a state that's turning blue with every election cycle. Well, I think that's where you see the cost-benefit analysis of Republican donors coming in. They can do this analysis, and when they do the analysis, Republicans simply come up short. They, they can't deliver on their promises or their words. Still, a two-to-one money advantage heading into the final weeks of the election startled even some Democrats. I guess what I was surprised at is what a large fundraising advantage it was. Pat Walk is the former chair of the Colorado Democratic Party. She says the problem for Republicans is divisions in the party, distracting and nasty primary elections that turn on how purely conservative a candidate is. From my perspective, the Republican brand in the state has been steadily going downward. But Walk noted that some Republican donors may just be conceding this year while waiting for better opportunities in the 2018 elections. And some people think that they're going to wait till the midterm elections, which they did fairly well in in the past. During the midterms, voter turnout falls and Republicans tend to outperform Democrats, even in blue states. Walk also cautions that Republicans could be pouring money into tax-exempt groups like so-called 501c4s and c3s, which have few reporting requirements. Rob Whitwer is a former Republican state lawmaker who co-authored a book in 2010 that detailed the Democrats' fundraising advantage. And unfortunately, because of the way that the money is hidden these days, the public will probably never have visibility to the full scope of the money that's being spent on these legislative races. But most Republicans scoffed at the notion that there was some hidden pile of money aiding state candidates. Whitworth says unreported money can only be spent on a narrow range of campaign activities, making it less useful. However, local super PACs control most of the state's campaign contributions. Whitworth says that hamstrings candidates. You really have no influence over your message, and you have no inf- opportunity to, to, to dictate the terms of the campaign. These are being decided in an office building in Denver or, God forbid, Washington, D.C., and these are state legislative races. To fix the problem, Rob Whitworth says candidates and parties should be allowed to raise larger sums of money. At least then voters would know who's influencing elections. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Coming up, the legal case of a Denver woman who wants to be able to say no if gay couples ask her to make a wedding website. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. A Denver woman who makes websites doesn't want to have to make them for gay couples getting married. She says it's against her Christian beliefs. Her legal team is using a strategy that's often used by liberal causes. Constitutional law professor Melissa Hart of CU Boulder is going to walk us through this case. And welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Briefly, what are the arguments in this lawsuit by the owner of the company, which is called 303 Creative? So 303 Creative uh, is, a, as you said, a website designing service. They don't currently do wedding websites, but they want to be able to. And they want to be able to make websites that are only for traditional marriages, not same-sex marriages, because of the owner's religious beliefs. Uh, she argues that being required to serve same-sex couples would violate her free speech rights and also her 
uh, right to free exercise of religion. All right. And what is potentially at play here is a civil rights law in Colorado. Is that right? Exactly. So Colorado's anti-discrimination law provides that if you uh, operate a for-profit business that accommodates the public, you have to provide your services to all people without discriminating on the basis of race or sex or sexual orientation. And so the question here is if uh, 303 Creative refuses to make websites for same-sex couples, is that a violation of the anti-discrimination law? Lawyers for 303 Creative say the owner, Lori Smith, isn't engaging in discrimination based on sexual orientation. Instead, as a graphic designer, she's an artist and she's refusing to promote things with her art that she doesn't believe in. This is the, the speech argument that you mentioned. How, how important is that? Well, this argument is coming up in, in lawsuits all around the country. Actually, most of them brought by uh, the same lawyers who are representing 303 Creative. Uh, they're looking at the kinds of services that people can provide to weddings, such as a wedding website, floral design, wedding cake design. The Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, was a, a similar suit. Uh, and they're saying this is artistic expression. And because it's artistic expression, the creators shouldn't be required to celebrate same-sex marriage. And that that's different from discrimination against people on the basis of sexual orientation. Indeed, the issue has come up before. So in 2012, this cake shop in Lakewood refused to sell a wedding cake to a gay couple. The state civil rights commission ruled that was unlawful discrimination, and the Colorado Court of Appeals confirmed that decision unanimously. So help us understand the difference here between that case and the website case. Well, I, I'm not sure that there is a difference. Um, one of the, uh, well, there actually, I shouldn't say that. There clearly is one big difference, which is that um, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, the the baker declined service to the couple. In this case, um, Ms. Smith and 303 Creative has not yet created any websites. She has not been asked by any couples to make a wedding website that she doesn't want to make. Um, so she's saying in the future, if she does make such websites, she wants to be able to deny service. So that's a big difference. A big difference. Um, another possible difference could be um, the the important issue in Masterpiece Cake Shop, one of the important issues for the Civil Rights Commission and for the Court of Appeals, was that there was no wedding cake that had been made. There was no expression involved yet because there was no discussion about what the wedding cake would look like. Uh, it was sort of a generic cake. Okay. He said, I will not make a cake for you. Um, here, Ms. Smith is arguing that a, the website would have to involve her artistic expression because it would have to involve choices about the words that are on the website, the fonts, the colors. So she very much uh, – her lawyers very much portray what she does as the creation of art um, in a way that the creation of a cake may or may not be the creation of art. And this approach to uh, bring a legal case before there's actually been any kind of suit or complaint, this is known as a preemptive challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's often used, I think, by liberal groups, civil rights groups. Yeah, it's it has been used more often by civil rights groups um, than uh, seeking to challenge laws that are going to interfere with um, with their rights under the Constitution. Uh, and and obviously the lawyers in this case are framing this as a civil rights issue, um, her Ms. Smith's rights to religious freedom. Um, the, a, a difference, I think, between this case and some of the other cases that have been brought is that in the other cases, uh, the laws that were they were seeking to challenge preemptively 
would clearly have to be enforced against the people who were seeking to challenge them. So as an example, uh, Planned Parenthood brought has brought a number of preemptive suits challenging abortion laws that said to be an abortion provider, you have to have admitting privileges at a hospital. That's an on-off question. You either have them or you don't have them. Um, and so so the abortion providers would know that if this law was uh, enacted, it would apply against them. In this case, 303 Creative is trying to say that it's the same kind of on-off switch. If she produces websites, she will face a challenge. Um, however, the first, she has no customers, so we don't know that anyone will ever come and ask her to design a website for a same-sex couple. And also the commission has a lot of discretion about how and when to enforce. So there's not certainty that this law would in fact apply to harm her in any way. And that makes this case a little different than than others that have been brought. Hmm. Indeed, the same group that represented Masterpiece, Masterpiece Cakes is representing 303 Creative, the website maker in this lawsuit. It's the Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian legal organization based in Arizona. Is it fair to say that they may have identified what didn't work in the Masterpiece case and brought a lawsuit designed to target the law more effectively? Um, is that fair? To, I, it's fair to say that they're trying a different strategy, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I think in this case, one of the things that they're arguing, they tr- they work very hard the, to characterize everything that the anti-discrimination law prohibits as speech rather than as conduct. Uh, what the anti-discrimination law prohibits is, in fact, conduct. It's you can't deny service um, and you can't put up a sign in your store window that says whites only or no gays allowed. Um, they're arguing What's different in this case, I think, is that they're really targeting that second piece, the you can't say you won't serve someone, and saying that uh, Ms. Smith wants to be able to say on her website, I will not create wedding pages for same-sex couples, and not allowing her to say that, they say, denies her right to free speech and freedom of religion. Service versus speech. I visited the website for 303 Creative, and its owner posted this. Since filing a lawsuit to protect my First Amendment rights on September 20th, I have been bombarded with many messages about my case. Some have been supportive, but many more have been hate-filled and deeply unsettling. You are a constitutional lawyer, Melissa Hart. Put into context for us how these competing claims for rights, you know, the right not to be discriminated against— goes up against the right uh, to freedom of religion or speech, how those are weighed. And, and does this strike you as a very fresh argument, a fresh debate, or or is this as old as time? Uh, in many ways, it's as old as time. I, uh, this is the same kind of debate that went on in the 1960s when in the, with the creation of the Civil Rights Act when white store owners didn't want to have to serve black customers. And they said, this is my right not to serve black customers. And the response of the government was, if you really don't want to serve black customers, you, you shouldn't operate a restaurant. It's, you, don't, you don't have a right to operate a restaurant. And we ha- do have a right to protect the civil rights of other people. The same argument, I think, is going on here. Uh, if you really want to not create web pages for same-sex couples, the government will say, then don't create wedding pages. But if you're going to make money creating wedding pages, you're going to have to operate in a way that offers those services to all people equally. Um, on the other hand, it's new because this 
issue of same-sex marriage has become really highlighted by the Supreme Court's decision last year and the the tensions that that really does create between what I think are genuine religious beliefs of people and the civil rights of other people and how we as a society will work out that balance I think we're still is still playing out. Indeed this will play out. The suit has been filed but we should say that no hearing has been set yet. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Melissa Hart directs the Byron R. White Center for the Study of American Constitutional Law at CU Boulder. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Climate change has altered the growing season for plants like wildflowers. Observation has been the most powerful tool for scientists who study this, but the actual seeds may provide the most meaningful answers. CPR's Grace Hood takes us to a Fort Collins seed vault that's created tiny genetic time capsules for future use. For Christina Walters, the fascination with plant seeds dates back to her college years. I like it that they have mystery. You don't know what's going to happen until you add water. For decades, she's overseen research and collections at a seed lab on the Colorado State University campus. It's run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Seeds come in from across the world. Walters and just a few others have access to the highly secured part of the building. Yeah, this is the vault. It's a building within a building. And if seed storage sounds humdrum, get a load of the security for this part of the building that just blends in on campus. Statistics I use is it can take a Cadillac hurling at 70 miles an hour on the roof and not make a dent. We enter a freezer that's mostly empty, walk past packets of rice seeds, back up supplies for an international rice institute in the Philippines, and you find supplies for what's called Project Baseline. In 2012, the effort began to build a small catalog of wild plant species to study evolution. We have a lot of linum, which is a flax. We have clarkia, and we have sunflower for sure. Sunflower is a, a nice species. Project Baseline has more than 60 species, millions of seeds that scientists have gathered from across the country. Here, it's all about the future and what researchers may need 25 or 50 years from now to study plant changes. And our biggest stakeholders are future scientists. They're the ones that are going to inherit the collection and figure out what to do with it. In a year when climate change is a point of debate in the presidential election, scientists know it's happening. This proactive approach is a pillar in Project Baseline's foundation. The goal is to be prepared to study how wild plants evolve in the future. All other seed banks have been designed for the uh, important work of preserving genetic variation in crop species or for rare and endangered species. Susan Mazur is a professor at UC Davis and a co-founder of Project Baseline. In a Skype interview, she says the idea is to save seeds for what scientists call resurrection experiments. Researchers grow older Project Baseline seeds along with plants from the same location that may have evolved. They have the same exact conditions. Differences can be attributed to plant evolution. To understand the um, process and outcome of evolution that's going to be experienced by these common species over the next few decades, we had to design a seed bank that focuses exclusively on widespread and common locally abundant species. 
take Clarkia. The wildflower is found in California. Mazur says there's a shorter growing period since it flowers right before rain stops and soils dry up for the summer. Its nickname is Farewell to Spring. And as the climate warms, these flowers will come under more stress. In a lab away from the seed vault, CSU student Ryan Lynch unlocks a Ziploc bag full of tiny paper packets. They're seeds gathered for Project Baseline. So we're working on processing today. Each packet has lines of handwritten details, like the type of plant seeds and where they were gathered. A small amount gets germinated. Having stuff like that lets us look back in the future to see how yields may be changing um, as stuff changes in terms of climate change and environment. Seeds take many shapes and forms. One type, yellow monkey flower, doesn't even look like a seed. It's kind of exciting to have some of these actually here to work with. Oh my gosh, that looks like like crumbs or something. Yeah, almost like a speck of dust. It's pretty incredible. And here's the crazy part. Every new type of seed added to the collection gets a small health checkup. Take this monkey flower. Lynch dissects it and checks to make sure it's viable. If it passes the test, the rest of the seeds get added to the collection. Christina Walters says seeds can last up to 100 years if properly stored. Everyone has this idea that seeds are like rocks. And here you learn an appreciation they're living. They just don't look like they're living. Project Baseline seeds could be used by scientists as soon as 2019. They'll prioritize plant species that see the most stress due to drought and other weather conditions that come with climate change. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Perhaps you heard the news that William Shakespeare wasn't an artistic loner. Earlier this week, Oxford University Press announced it would credit Christopher Marlowe as co-author of the Bard's Henry VI series. Their authorship has long been in question, and after further analysis by a team of scholars, Oxford will release its new edition of the plays next month with the shared byline. But for Amanda Gaguerre of the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, the verdict is still out. My first thought is that it's not a definitive study, that this, you know, the fact that... um that Oxford is, is crediting Marlowe as a co-writer doesn't necessarily mean that, yes, in fact, Shakespeare and Marlowe put their heads together and both intentionally co-wrote these plays. But she thinks this does shed some light on theater's collaborative nature. We do know that there, there are some times that Shakespeare did co-write and collaborate with his fellow playwrights, with his company members. And I think that the interesting thing about this study is that it, it really kind of works to debunk the myth of the lone artist as sort of a solitary playwright writing a play on his own and then presenting a finished product to a team of actors. The Colorado Shakespeare Festival announces its lineup for the 60th season, Sunday, which you'll be able to see at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A transgender six-year-old was thrown into the spotlight when her school decided she couldn't use the girls' bathroom. That was in 2013 in the town of Fountain near Colorado Springs. A new film tells the highly publicized story of Coy Mathis and her family. We did the Katie Kirk thing on Thursday, and then yesterday we talked to Fox 31 in Denver and then Associated Press. They brought a camera and did a little bit of a story. The, the Gazette and the Independent both just did talking to me on the phone. Growing Up Coy screens next week at the Denver Film Festival, then at the Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival in Colorado Springs. Director Eric Jehola joins my colleague Nathan Heffel by phone from New York. Welcome to the program. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Your film covers the entire length of Coy's case, and filming began before the family even filed their complaint. How did you meet the Mathis family? I first came in contact with them actually through their attorney, Michael Silverman, who's also in the film, and he's based in New York. And I had been wanting to make a film about a transgender person fighting for their rights for a while. And so I had made contact with Michael and uh, talked about the prospect of a feature documentary. Um, And I think it was, you know, over a couple of years, we had been talking about the possibilities. And um, he told me about the Mathis family one day, and um, it seems like... um, the right case at the right time. And I think within a couple of weeks, I was off to Colorado to meet them. You've said the situation with Coy is akin to the separate but equal rulings that African-Americans faced. How so? Um, I think that, um, you know, with Coy, there's a lot of talk right now with the transgender bathroom policies that uh, separate but equal in terms of bathroom use is something that um, that may be acceptable. But I think in Coy's case, um, we're talking about a six-year-old who identifies as a girl, and for her to use the nurse's bathroom or the boy's bathroom was something that the family felt would be putting a scarlet letter on her and singling her out in front of her classmates. So in Coy's case, I think separate but equal was not something that was going to work for them. And it was important for the Mathis family to get Coy into to be able to use the girl's bathroom like any other little girl. And you spent a very large amount of time with this family. Um, How much time did you actually spend with them? Um, Well, I wasn't actually, um, you know, living in Colorado at the time of the filming. So I was in New York and I would go back and forth for probably a week at a time um, for about 12 to 15 trips over the course of a couple of years. So um, altogether, we had about, uh, I'd say, 200 hours of footage um, and probably altogether about two months of, of shooting over the course of two or three years. So you're you're bouncing back and forth. Did that create, uh, was there any conflict between you and the family since you were there for very intimate moments in their lives? Well, before we started shooting with them, we had many conversations about off-camera, about what it would mean to be a part of a documentary uh, and a project that could last more than a week or a month or even a year. Um, and I think that they understood that our goal was really to educate people about what it actually means to be transgender uh, and to tell their story in an honest, uh, sensitive, and respectful way um, to try to um, help not only their case, but, um, you know, the lives of all transgender kids in Colorado. Um, and so I think when, when they realized we were, that was one of our goals, that made it easier for them to trust us with, with the cameras. What's Koi like? Koi is really just an adorable, well, at the time, an adorable six-year-old. When I first walked into the house, I actually, uh, to meet them, I actually had no idea what to expect. I had never met a transgender child before. And the first thing Koi did when I went in and introduced myself was she gave me a big hug. 
And I think I realized at that moment what was really at stake with this with this case. I mean, this it's really just became clear right away for me that this is the story of a little girl who just wants to be like any other little kid. Um, and these the controversy of which bathroom she wants to use or even the label of being transgender, that is something that the adults care about more than the kids and something that, that we put on them. Um, and so that that became clear very quickly. And many people haven't met transgender people. How does the reality differ from the stereotypes that people may, may think about? Well, I think you're really right about that. I think there's a statistic that says something like 85% of people in the country have not knowingly met someone who's transgender. And what that means is that most people are learning about transgender issues through what they see in the media on TV and documentaries um, and in movies. And because of that, I think that there's I feel a greater sense of responsibility to portray Koi and her family uh, honestly and, you know, and as the loving family that they are um, who care about Koi and want to do the best for her. And although the film is titled Growing Up with Koi, it's very much about the entire family and the impact the case had on all of them. Uh, What were some of the things that happened during the filming? Um, well, you know, the fact that Koi is six years old, it really affected our approach on how we wanted to film the documentary. Um, it was important to us as the documentary crew to not single Koi out. So we really tried to film equally with all of the kids um, and never asked Koi questions that would um, about her gender or about being transgender, anything that would make her feel uncomfortable. Um, we really left that to other people and took more of a fly-on-the-wall approach, um, filmed with all of the kids pretty much equally, even though a lot of that other footage didn't make it into the film. But we really ultimately did want it to be a film about the family and what the family went through over the course of this case. Um, you know, Koi's parents, Jeremy and Catherine, are two young, straight, heterosexual parents. And I think that a lot of other parents are going to be able to relate to, um, you know, the choices that they have to make and what they're going through. And hopefully it'll, it'll help other parents to really just ask the question, what would I do? What would I do if this were my child and how would I um, handle it? And there are some raw moments in this film, not just with with the the parents and with Koi, but with Koi's siblings. Uh, There's a scene where Koi's older brother, Max, pretends he's a robot, and he's processing the things happening around him. Here's a clip. I do not understand English. Robots do not have minds. Robots feel weird when they see a boy or a girl change their gender or when they change their self. Besides, robots do not have feelings. That's powerful. And you're there for all of this. And and this is also with the intrusive nature of, of the media, with the multiple interviews being done through the day. How were the siblings taking all of this? I think it was really, well, Max is Koi's twin brother, actually. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it was actually a difficult for not just Koi and her parents, but the whole family um, to have that kind of attention and scrutiny put on them. I think Koi's parents protected the kids as much as they could, but Max, for example, often wondered, why is Koi getting all of this attention um, and I'm not. Why isn't anyone interested in seeing my toys and the things that I can do? And it didn't appear to him that Koi was doing anything um, special or unique um, that um, that he couldn't get that, that same kind of attention. So, you know, it did affect the other kids uh, in terms of you know, what was happening with Koi in the media. And I think everyone was aware of that and tried their best to um, to mitigate the bad effects of that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with Eric Jehola, the director of the documentary Growing Up Koi. The film follows the Colorado case of Koi Mathis, a six-year-old transgender girl. The film will be screened next week at the Denver Film Festival. Um, was it difficult for you to not feel like you were being intrusive or perhaps even contributing to the family's struggles during your filming? Uh, yeah, that was difficult. We we had many conversations about how to approach what was happening and um, and what our role in it was. We really took the Mathis family's cues as to what was okay for us to film and what wasn't. And certainly there were times when we felt that they um, had had enough for the day or it was time for us to wrap it up. And we would take those cues as best we could and maybe we would stop and go out and film some of the beautiful mountains in Colorado for B-roll for the film uh, or give them some time off. And then other times they told us, you know, that they weren't comfortable with us filming something, um, whatever it might be. And that was totally fine too. Our goal was not to add to the pressure that the media was putting on them, but to work with them um, in a way that made them comfortable so that um, uh, given that we had, you know, the common cause of making the world a better place for kids like Koi. For people who may not know this case, tell, tell us what happened in the end. Well, in... I think it's important to acknowledge that Colorado already had a law in place that protected transgender kids to use the public facilities that matched their identity. Um, the school system decided to go against that law uh, when they um, when they decided that Koi should either use the nurse's bathroom or the boy's bathroom. Um, the Mathis family, with their attorney, filed a complaint uh, with the Colorado Civil Rights Division uh, and asked them to rule as to whether this law, the school could do this or not. Um, after they went public and uh, over the course of the case, there was an investigation and, uh, and ultimately it was ruled in the family's favor that Koi should be able to use the bathroom that matches her identity. So in the end, you know, they did win and it was a precedent setting case, which uh, I think had ripple effects. Well, first of all, it protected all kids, uh, transgender kids in Colorado to use the bathroom that matches their identity, not only in schools, but in restaurants and all public accommodations. Um, but I also think it had ripple effects around the country. Shortly thereafter, there was a law passed in California that also protect transgender kids. Um, and then um, 
And I think that other states that are debating this issue, they look to prior precedents uh, when, when deciding um, what to do in their own state. Was there, was there ever thought of, of, of talking with the, the, the family members or parents who may have been concerned about a transgender person or child using, using a bathroom? Um, I felt like for this documentary, I really wanted to tell the story from the point of view of the Mathises and the Mathises' experience. And the truth is, with this case, they really didn't encounter other parents disagreeing with them to their to their face. Um, I think it's a sign of the times that in this day of age, no one actually confronts other people to their face as much anymore. Everything's done online. Um, people can choose a username or an avatar and make uh, as many negative comments as they want and messages and, um, and you know, and user comments. And that was really um, difficult. Difficult for, to do. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Filmmaker Eric Jehola joined Nathan Heffel from New York. Jehola directed Growing Up Koi about the Mathis family of Colorado and their transgender daughter, Koi. The film screens next week at the Denver Film Festival and in two weeks at the Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival in Colorado Springs. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.